These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we're featuring our most popular interviews of 2018. Barbara Ehrenreich talked about the place of health in our popular culture. She called it our current epidemic of wellness. She also called it killing ourselves to live longer. That's coming up later in this hour. Also later in this hour, Amos Oz died on December 28th. The Israeli novelist was an unyielding critic of the occupation of the West Bank and a campaigner for a two-state solution. We'll listen to excerpts of an interview we did with him in 2004 about Mideast politics. But first, Seymour Hirsch is one of our heroes. In 1970, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his expose of the My Lai Massacre. He was a 33-year-old freelancer at the time. Since then, he's won pretty much every other award. He's worked as a staff writer for the New York Times and The New Yorker, where he wrote during the Iraq War. He's also written a dozen books. The new one is Reporter, a Memoir. Cy Hirsch, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Well, let me list some of the big stories of yours featured in this book. Briefly, Abu Ghraib, Watergate, CIA surveillance of the anti-war movement in the Nixon years, the crimes of Henry Kissinger and the CIA in Chile and other places, and of course, the first and most unforgettable, Mi Lai. For me, the most powerful of your My Lai stories was one of the follow-ups of the original revelations that American soldiers killed unarmed Vietnamese civilians. Uh, 504 is the Vietnamese count. The U.S. Army now says 347. You learned that a lot of the shooting had been done by a soldier named Paul Meadlow with your characteristic doggedness, you found Meadlow's mother in a small town near Terre Haute, Indiana. What happened when you met her? Well, you, you have to understand, this is these kids that were in this unit. They were mostly underclass. A, lar- a larger percentage of uh, African Americans and in America uh, generally, uh, same for Hispanics. And among the whites, most of them were rural. 
and not very well educated. Paul Meadlow was from, the town was called New Goshen. It was a farming community um, um, 20 or 30 miles outside of Terre Haute, Indiana, which is, you know, <laughs> I don't know, from uh, 100 miles from Indianapolis, well, you know, wherever it is. I learned about the kid. I learned he'd done a lot of shooting. I learned that the day after he'd done a lot of shooting, he lost a leg. He stepped on a landmine in Vietnam. They were, on, they were just patrolling like it was another day the day after they murdered 500 people. And so I call up before I'm coming. I was, I think, in Salt Lake, and I, I found the number that looked like the right number, and I called. I said, I think I'm looking for your son, Paul. How is he? And whatever she said, well, what do you want to know? And I said, well, how's his leg? She said, well, he's doing fine. So I knew I had the right person. Said I was a reporter. Went to see her. Got there. It took all day. Got there late the next day. I don't know how in the hell I ever found New Goshen, let alone the house. She comes out. I'm, I tell her I'm the journalist. I introduced myself and said, I'm the guy that called last night. Uh, where's your son? Is he here? And she said he lives, there's a separate house. This is all wooden shack. She said he lives there with his wife. And I said, um, is it okay to talk to him? She said, well, you'll have to ask him. I, you know, I, I can't speak for him. And then she looked and she said to me, you know, she said, I gave them a good boy and they sent me back a murderer. Wow. And I got to tell you, I mean, you, you don't get those lines very often, like, like never. I just like froze. Um, what could you say? So I went in, and I went into his place, and for some reason, what I did, I didn't know him. He was a big boy. And I said, um, he, he knew I was coming. He said, I, I knew you were going to come today. My mom told me. I said, I want to talk about what happened. He said, well, I don't know. I said, but before they do, do that, I said, do me a favor. Take off your shoe. I want to see what they did to you, what your new leg looked like. And he was happy to do it. He took off his shoe and he showed me the prosthetic leg, took it off. It took him months. I later learned five months in a hospital to recover from that, that terrible wound to his leg. I said, so tell me what happened. And he began to say, I was, uh, he began to tell the story of just shooting. He put seven, seven or eight clips of 17 bullets and shot people in a ditch again and again and again. And uh, Callie kept on saying, do it. Most of the other boys equally as uneducated the other boys did not shoot uh, very few of the african-american guys the black guys did most of them just stayed away uh, and same with the hispanics uh, it was a white boy shoot let's go back to the beginning of your story we're interested in how you got started were you the kind of kid in high school who edited the school newspaper and constantly got in trouble with the principal over the stuff you wrote no no, I never had anything to do with journalism. My 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 um, my father was uh, an Eastern Europe from uh, uh, Lithuania. My mother was Eastern Europe from Poland. They weren't very much educated. They were sort of off the screen. I was I have a twin brother and two older sisters that were twins. I did a lot of sports. It was a perfectly ordinary, if lower middle class life. There was always enough food to eat. My mother baked a lot. She communi- communicated to my brother and me by by um, food. My father just didn't communicate. He was sort of, you know, uh, I think really unhappy at where he was in life. He was only in the 40, he died at 49 of cancer. He smoked three or four packs of Lucky Strikes a day. And so I, I didn't have any intellectual role models, except that when I was about 12 or 13, I joined the Book of the Month Club. Huh. And I paid, I think, either 99 or a dollar a month. And I always picked the nonfiction I mean, monthly book, and half the time it was J. Edgar Hoover telling us about communism or somebody else like that. But the other half was stuff that 
I got into, you know, uh, the Habsburg monarchy, I remember, the Catholic Church, uh, uh, history about uh, the China. You know, they would get these goofy things every, mo- every other month. And so I, I read a lot as a kid. Our school was, I was always good in school. In your book, you write about your first job as a journalist at the City News Bureau in Chicago. One of the big lessons you learned there as a cub reporter came when you were a, a police reporter, and a call came in that a cop had shot and killed a suspect trying to escape. You rushed to the scene. What did you learn, and what story did you write? If you remember, there's a famous play by Ben Hick called uh, Front Page. Yeah. You know, uh, that's the city news. City news was full of aggressive guys, young guys wanting to get hired by one of the Chicago papers or somewhere else who were going to spend a year covering police and fires and uh, being the first people on the scene for the four dailies. And here I am covering the Chicago police midnight to eight. Not much goes on. Part of the time, <laughs> the cops would bring us some dope they confiscated, some Mary Jane, we called it. We smoke a joint and watch uh, some of the stag films they caught. Cops were pretty nice. I got along with the cops. And so I learned a lot. We had the police radio. We could listen to it in, in the station. Two cops called in and said they have a suspect, and he tried to get away, and they shot him, and we're coming in to do a report. So they were coming to the main downtown police station. Being a, energetic, I, instead of waiting for them, the report, I ran down to the basement of the police station just to get the cops when they came in. And I, I happened to get there just as the squad car pulled in, and two beefy, obviously Irish, red-faced cops overweight got out and one of their buddies said so you had a guy try to escape on you he said no one of them said to his buddy he said no I, you know i told the nigger get out of here beat it and i shot him you know and i plugged him when he was going down an alley and i heard it you know wow wow i immediately disappeared from view i didn't want the cop to know i saw i heard that because this is chicago 1960 you did not mess around with the cops except you do it procedurally you don't stick your nose out and so I, what I did is I called my editors. I had only been at the City News about four months. I called the, the day-night editor, whatever it was, and he said, do nothing. I said, what are you talking about? The guy said he shot him in the back. And my editor said, it's your word against the cops. You know, if you distinct impression I was left with is not only would you not be able to confirm the story, you, you would be in big trouble for telling the story. Hmm. So I waited a couple of days. Until the, uh, I went in and got the, the coroner's report, sort of casually looked at a bunch of them, and sure enough, there were three holes in his back. And so then I called back, and I said, there's some evidence. This is really important. And the editor said to me, and you have to remember, I've only been there about four, six months. The editor said to me, you don't understand what you're doing. Forget about it. It's not going to happen. You're not going to write that story. We're never going to handle it. I felt very depressed because it was self-censorship. We had censored a good story. My editor sensed it. I was not powerful enough or smart enough to figure out a way to get around it. But I remember feeling this is, this is not a perfect business. And you know what? I'm also not perfect because I went along with it. Well, let's talk about the world right now. A lot of people say we are now in a new golden age of investigative journalism. Not since the glory days of Watergate has there been so much to do and so many talented people doing it. I wonder if you agree. Nope, not at all. Uh, I, I didn't support for Trump. I, I don't support his views. I see him as the orange man. But I also see him, you know, I also understand he was elected by, uh, by a percentage of the people in the country. Maybe she got more votes, but he was elected. He won the election. He's president. 
But on the other hand, there's two new elements in the game. One is cable news, in which you have panel after panel and night after night. And, you know, the panels of journalists and reporters, let's talk about the new, new Trump this. And the first two words you hear 90% of the time from the panelists are the most lethal words, I think, in the, in the language today, I think. I don't care what somebody thinks. I want to know what they know. And so you have this, net, this layer of instant gratification, instant news. And the White House, no matter how much Trump may lie, the, the White House can release a, a one-page document alleging something around the world. And CNN and, uh, and MSNBC and Fox will have Crytron, I think. What do they call it? Crytons? Things that go across the bottom of the page. Yeah. Breaking news. White House says 42 killed in Yemen raid. You know, nothing is checked. Everything's taken on face value. It cheapens the whole product. And so what you have now, this great division. We've always had a division in this country. What's new? So you have this incessant race to produce stories. You, there's, there's no checking. It's just bam. It's just bam, bam, bam. Um, and since uh, Trump, whether you like him or don't like him, is catnip for the cable ratings and catnip for the number of subscribers that the um, New York Times tells us every three months they get, mostly online, because they're doing anti-Trump left, right, and center. So you get this complete dichotomy in the press corps. I can think I don't like Trump, and he scares the hell out of me. But I can also think, in some weird way, you can't underestimate him. He's a, he's a circuit breaker. He'll say yes to going to North Korea without knowing a goddamn thing about it, because that's his style. And you can criticize him all you want for it, but the fact of the matter is he's going to go. And, you know, the, whatever they need to do gets filled in later. And if he, if he, on a weekend, the tension is flagging, he'll say, I'm not going to go and write a letter about it and then dominate news for three more, four more days. I happen to believe he's, being, he's playing the press a hell of a lot more than the press wants to think. But that's just what I believe. I, that's what I think. It doesn't mean anything. What are the big stories that you think need to be written right now? Are they about the Trump organization's finances, or are they about something completely different? Well, I think some of the premises of our time, post-election, post-Hillary defeat, need to be analyzed. You know, I do most of my stuff as, as military and intelligence and that kind of stuff. I've been doing it for 50 years. And anytime I see the American government all coming out, rushing to a judgment, as they did after uh, the election, before, before he was inaugurated, Trump, uh, coming out with what they call as high confident assessments that uh, the Russians hacked into the DNC uh, John Podosa's emails, and that turned the election. High confidence in that judgment. And um, I also saw there were assessments made of high confidence for for two years after nine after nine eleven that the Iraqis have WMD. Even after it was clear they didn't, they were still putting out assessments. High confidence means. To me, we don't have a clue. We yeah. don't know. And this doesn't mean that I'm not aware that Trump has put together the worst cabinet, that he doesn't read, that he's very dangerous. Um, but I, I tell you, I think Trump can also, anytime he wants, go to Russia and meet with Putin, and he probably will. <laughs> i got to tell you, I think he's crazy like a fox. I think we're all misreading him. Seymour Hirsch, his new book is called Reporter a memoir. I love the whole thing. Sai, thanks for talking with us today. Hey, that was, it was fun. I'm sorry you didn't get to talk say anything, but that's, that's okay. <laughs>
Another of our most popular shows of 2018 featured Barbara Ehrenreich. She's one of our heroes, the author of more than a dozen books, including the unforgettable Nickel and Dimed. Now she's got a new book out, a bestseller, and it's terrific. It's called Natural Causes, An Epidemic of Wellness, The Certainty of Dying, and Killing Ourselves to Live Longer. Barbara, welcome back. Well, it's good to be with you again. Well, there are lots of books about successful aging. What a great phrase. One of them that you read says, I quote, Heart attacks, strokes, the common cancers, diabetes, most falls and fractures are not a normal part of growing old. They are an outrage, close quote. Who is responsible for this outrage? The answer, these people said, was you. You are responsible entirely for any inconveniences and disabilities that arise with age because they can all be stopped if you do the right things and live the right way. Your title refers to an epidemic of wellness, and June 9th is Global Wellness Day. The slogan Uh is, one day can change your whole life. On Global Wellness Day, it says at their website, you should go to sleep at 10 p.m. Before that, walk for an hour, drink more water, have dinner with your family, do a good deed, and don't use plastic bottles. Well, 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 do you have any comment? Well, you know, there is a global wellness industry selling the advice of gurus, every kind of product that the gurus can recommend, which is constantly changing. And with lots of conferences and events, practitioners, you can find local wellness practitioners in any community affluent enough to support them. This is a very upper-class pursuit. You know, if you're an ordinary American worker and your company introduces a wellness program, that doesn't mean anything good. It means they're going to monitor mostly your weight. And if it's above a certain level, you'll be, you know, pressured to get it down. And if you get out of the wellness program, if you opt out, you pay a fine. Working-class people in America do seem to be more likely to be overweight. A lot of them smoke. They don't look healthy compared to the people you see in you know upper-class shopping streets where nobody is fat, nobody is smoking, and pretty much everybody looks fit and young and healthy. Why is this? Ah, oh, yes. In fact, I've noticed one thing about the rich is their, their skin glows. Yeah. My skin doesn't glow, probably yours doesn't, (laughs) but they actually glow. So, yes, we are developing into um, like a class bifurcated double species. Mm. And then they have their luxury wellness spas scattered around the world where you can indulge in day-long spa activities uh, that will, of course, make you glow. But don't you think working-class people should stop smoking and stop eating unhealthy food and start uh, working out? (laughs) Well, should? I'm not sure. I come from that class. I was raised uh, on a diet of, you know, gravy and pan drippings and butter on everything. And the smoke was, well, ubiquitous. Cigarette smoke was the scent of human habitation. Mm exercise, well, we had to walk to get to the bus or walk to school, but there was no such thing as exercise without a purpose to it. So I come from that class, 
the deplorables class, mm. as Hillary Clinton calls them. So I, you know, I have deep roots there in all of those vices and participate in them in various ways. And I'm not judgmental about other people. I don't, you know, I'm, when I'm up with upper middle class friends, I will be criticized, for example, putting butter on my toast. Terrible. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm admitting it. That's what toast exists for, <laughs> to be a vehicle for butter. But, yes, there, there are class differences, but there are, those, these have some material basis. One is that um, gym membership costs money. Personal trainer costs, costs a whole lot of money. The health foods are likely uh, to be more expensive uh, than the kind of crappy foods you can get at a convenience store. And you don't have hours and hours of time uh, to devote to the care of your skin and your body and so forth. It's another. It's a different world, different assumptions. Smoking. Can I say something in defense of smoking? Please. Will this get you off the air in L.A.? I don't know. <laughs> Let's give it but, a try. I mean, I quote um, in my in my book, a, a working class woman, saying why exactly she smoked. Because it is that's the working class form of self care. Hmm. When you're doing, you're running around, say, in a restaurant, and you you have hardly any breaks. You do this thing. You light a cigarette, and that is what you're doing for yourself. The upper middle class should not be so judgmental. Well, one of the things that we are all told by a whole lot of nonprofit organizations is that early detection is the key to health, and uh, early detection can save our lives. So much of medicine now is about early detection. For example, uh, to take an example from your book, the bone density scan to prevent things like hip fractures that can lay you up for weeks, and if you're old, you can end up in a nursing home. You got a bone density scan. How did it go? Well, I was diagnosed with osteopenia, which perhaps sounds pretty scary, right? Yeah. Only about half women of the women over 50 have it. So that's not a disease. It's sort of a made-up disease, and partly made up in this case by Merck, the pharmaceutical company that manufactures a pill for it. I did, a, I did this research just by Googling around the time I had the bone density scan, and it did not seem like a good deal to me. The medications that are supposed to cure it have their own bad effects. One of them, ironically, being uh, in some women causing a tendency to more bone fractures. <laughs> so the evidence is not good on that. And I, that's where, where I began to get really skeptical about everything, including mammograms, colonoscopies, and all those other sacred rituals uh, that we kind of expect, especially over 50. In your book, you say you have now given up annual physicals and cancer screenings. I thought the correct position was that we're in favor of preventive medical care because it's a way of reducing high-tech treatment for advanced diseases, treatments that are expensive and invasive. Isn't that true? Well, you have to look at the, you have to look at the research, like on mammograms. 
international comparisons show that countries that do lots and lots of mam- mammogram screenings do not have lower death rates from breast cancer than do com- uh, countries that do not. An individual can say, oh, it saved my life. We don't know that. Tumor might have gone away by itself. And there are also risks to finding out you have uh, some kind of detectable problem. And that is that then they start doing biopsies and other things that really are kind of undermining to your health. And this is not just my opinion. Doctors groups, uh, including um, finally the U.S. Proctological Association, uh, have begun to not recommend prostate cancer screening for men anymore because the, if it leads to surgery, uh, it may be destroying the surgery may be taking out a, a tumor that was going to go not going to grow anyway in the lifetime of that man. But in the meantime, you're leaving him with incontinence and uh, probably erectile dis- dysfunction. That's a high price to pay. So why why do you think there is so much screening and testing now? Could could somebody be making money off of this? John, <laughs> <laughs> one basic problem is we have a for-profit medical industry, by and large, in this country. They have a problem with well people. I'm a well person. You're probably a well person. Yes. They, and if, if you're over 65, you have insurance. And so what can they do? They can say, well, maybe we'll find a problem. You know, at least we have a market among the well people for all these screenings and tests. You could say that's one kind of motivation. Another is that there is a huge anxiety about dying in our society. I, I'm, I'm so surprised when I talk to my own friends, people of my own age and younger, they do not want to talk about this subject at all. They're terrified and see that these, these tests, even if they are empty rituals, as something that will ward off the, uh, their eventual horror of dying. You have a lot of skepticism and a lot of good arguments against screening and testing, but, but what about Medicare for all? Aren't, don't we support Medicare for all? Oh, I sure do. Uh, and, I, and one thing that needs to be looked at here is the huge investment in people, elderly people with over 65. We have Medicare for them right now, while other people, you know, get basically nothing. But we don't want to just necessarily generalize what goes on with Medicare. We should be examining this and say what procedures and interventions make sense. And I, I, I'm, I'm talking about a lot of things that don't make sense. Yeah. Like, like one of the things I'd say that seems to be, seems to be, I haven't done the research on it, that makes sense is prenatal care for women. You know, and it's going to be young women who are, having, who are pregnant. Yes. But the maternal mortality is actually rising in the United States right now. While all this investment goes into relatively useless procedures for elderly people. Last question here, Barbara. You're not just a best-selling author of more than a dozen books with a lot of uh, opinions. You are also a trained scientist. What are your credentials? I have a Ph.D. in cellular immunology, which it turned out was crucial to this book and understanding why we die. So why aren't you teaching biology in a university? What, what happened? Well, you know, John, um, a lot of us got derailed by 
becoming political activists in the 60s and 70s. That's what derailed me. <laughs> okay. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I believe that the women's health movement had something to do with this in your case. Oh, yes. I was very active in the women's health movement starting at about 1970, around the same time as Our Bodies Ourselves came out, the book. And, you know, it was the big wave of, of women getting active around these issues for many, many reasons. But one of which was that they didn't trust doctors. They didn't like the way childbirth was over-medicalized. We didn't like the way the doctors, who were 40 years ago, over 90% male, treated us. And I was part of that. Barbara Ehrenreich, her terrific new book is Natural Causes, An Epidemic of Wellness, The Certainty of Dying, and Killing Ourselves to Live Longer. Barbara, congratulations on the book. and Thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Finally, Amos Oz died on December 28th. His novels were translated from Hebrew into dozens of languages, and he also wrote for The Nation. I spoke with Amos Oz in 2004. After September 11th, many American supporters of Israel's current policy of occupation uh, said to the Americans, now you know. Now you know what it's like to face militant Islamic extremism. Now you know the feeling of uh, a need for revenge. Now you know why we aren't making peace with our enemies. I wonder what you think about that that uh, sentiment, uh, that message, now you know. Much too simple. Much too simple. Indeed, there is a universal wave of fanaticism and fundamentalism. Islamic, but not only Islamic. There are many forms of fanaticism and fundamentalism. Indeed, we all have to combat, combat this fanaticism in all its forms. But the sad and painful facts of life in Israel slash Palestine remain. That small country is still the homeland of two nations, not one. Both of them have nowhere else to go. They cannot share the house like one happy family because the Israelis and the Palestinians are not one. They are not happy and they are not family either. They are two families. We have to divide the house and turn it into a two-family unit. I think it's known in English as a semi-detached house. <laughs> okay. And this solution has been the only solution and remains the only solution, whether the neighbors are sweet and nice or not. In fact, if they were sweet and nice, or if we were sweet and nice, maybe this kind of solution would not be necessary. Uh, September 11th only emphasizes the need to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a fair and just compromise. Now, now I understand that the, um, the Orthodox uh, believe that... Uh, God wants the Jews to live on the West Bank of the Jordan. Am I, am I being unfair here? No, I think you may be unfair to God, but not to the <laughs> Orthodox. I think God might have a certain dispute about this with Allah. And I don't see why God and Allah cannot sort this out between the two of them without involving so many innocent lives in this disagreement. Human beings who do not have direct access to God need a livable compromise. Well, for, of course, for a long time, for decades, you, you have uh, criticized the Israeli settlements on, on the West Bank. 
Then in January, this new issue arose when the uh, Palestinian Authority raised what they called the right to return to pre-1967 Israel, from which Palestinians had been evicted, forced to leave, intimidated into leaving back to 1948. I understand that in January you signed a newspaper ad in Israel uh, with other peace movement uh, uh, figures urging Palestinians to abandon their demand for a right to uh, return, and the Palestinian Authority basically rejected that position at at that time. Uh, This led many peace activists in Israel and here to conclude that the PLO did not want peace with Israel. They wanted it all. I wonder if that you came to that conclusion at that point. I think it is a very important thing that Israeli peace activists, Israeli doves like myself, made it crystal clear to our Palestinian partners in conversation that this is where the red line lies. If they want one Palestinian state next door to Israel, that's all right. If they want two Palestinian states, one in Palestine, one in Israel, this is out of the question and it's not negotiable. I think it brought some of the Palestinians to reassess their position once they have realized that on this issue of the so-called Palestinian right of return, not into Palestine but into Israel, there is no diversion between doves and hawks in Israel. The answer is no. No way. No deal. This is a non-starter. Yet I am utterly convinced that sooner or later, I can't give you a schedule, a timetable, sooner or later a two-state solution, Jewish Israel and Palestinian Arab Palestine, this solution is going to materialize. Whether it will take long time or short time depends precisely on how strong the peace forces on both sides are. This is no longer a conflict between Jew and Arab. It is a conflict between pragmatists on both sides and fanatics and fundamentalists on both sides. This is where the dividing line goes. And on the Israeli side, those fanatics and fundamentalists are focused on maintaining the settlements and expanding them. Uh, What what would it take to close down the settlements? And would this be a civil war for Israel? I don't think so. When Ehud Barak, Prime Minister Barak, proposed a two-state solution, and a removal of most of the settlements, the public opinion polls showed that about 70% of Jewish Israel was willing to be behind him, although with clenched teeth. I don't think it will involve a civil war, internal civil war, although we are not immune to episodes, individual episodes of internal violence, I'm afraid. And uh, I, I wonder what what role you think the United States can play, should play. The United States, of course, uh, under Jimmy Carter, brokered the peace treaty with the Egyptians. Ever since then, we've given the United States has given the Egyptians uh, about a couple of billion dollars a year in the military and uh, financial aid as a reward. What can the United States do? What should the United States do? I think it will be very helpful if the United States, rather than wagger its finger at this party or that party, would come forth with a livable solution, not the details, but the grand scheme of a livable solution, which both sides are prepared for in their heart of hearts. And if the United States could bring Egypt, Saudi Arabia and Jordan to endorse such a pragmatic solution. 
Amos Oz, one last question. We've been talking about uh, politics. How do you prevent politics from taking over every minute of, of your waking life? How do, you, how do you have a private life? I draw a very strict line. Each time I find that I agree with myself 100%, I don't write a story. I write an angry article telling my government what to do, sometimes telling it where to go altogether. But each time I find that I'm in a slight disagreement with myself, when I can hear more than just one voice in me, that's when I know I'm pregnant with a story or a novel. Now I have two different pens on my desk, very simple ball pens, which I buy for $2 or the equivalent of. But one of them is blue, the other is black, one for writing political essays, the others for novels and stories. So I draw a very distinct line and I try not to mix. These are two different usages of language. And, and on your typical day, do you do both of these things? Or are there some days, weeks, and months where, where you do nothing but, uh, but politics all the time? I only do politics when I get very angry. I never write a political analysis for scholarly reasons. When I am enraged, that's when I pick up the, one of those ball pens and write an angry article. Otherwise, I'm a storyteller. I only write politics for, for rage. Well, Amos Az, I want to thank you for coming into the studio today. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.